Hey guys, so we've got a great podcast for you this week. Uh, I just finished talking to Philip Mantle, who is an eminent UFO researcher, author, lecturer, and investigator. He started in the field back in 1979 when he joined the British UFO research organization, Bufora, uh, where he went on to head up their investigations unit. He has worked on publicizing several UFO films, including Spielberg's film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You heard of that one, haven't you? Uh, he's even taught the subject of UFOs at a Yorkshire college. So he's even taught this stuff. He's a professor of UFOs. Guy's cool. Um, Philip has published several books on UFOs over the years, but his latest is one of the most exciting ones and covers the Pascagoula incident. Come on, get with it. You know the Pascagoula incident, don't you? Calvin Parker, Charlie Hickson. Um, now, this is one of the most mysterious, incredible UFO incidents ever. It's probably second only to the Betty and Barney Hill situation so you want to get right on this one this is a really exciting story philip has a really intelligent logical and rational approach to this subject obviously there are a lot of fantasists and hoaxers and dummies out there who try to take us down the garden path when it comes to ufos but philip's not that guy he's going to show us the right way to investigate ufos and talk to us about these some pretty interesting stories and pretty fascinating mind-bending mysterious events that he's witnessed and also which he's investigated guys to be honest it's a really fascinating podcast i hope you're gonna enjoy it and uh as much as i did please welcome philip mantle to the podcast philip how are you hi ben how are you doing i'm very good indeed thank you very good Good. Thanks very much for uh, for joining us today. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, mate. My pleasure. Um, now, obviously, it's a fascinating subject. Um, I've been I've got the book, my story, Calvin Parker, Pascagoula, the closest encounter. Um, we'll get to that. But I just, first of all, you're obviously you're living the dream. You've got this uh, a full time <laughs> UFO investigator. What? How did you first get in, interested in the subject, and how did you start off with this? All right. So a long time ago now, Ben. Um, I mean, as, as a young lad, I was always interested in all things paranormal, and uh, you know, as, as things progress, I read a few things about UFOs, but not a great deal. And then in in late 1978, I went to work uh, in Germany, and of course, couldn't speak a word of the language, so uh, I managed to obtain a few books. Uh, which were about UFOs. Now, when I came home, uh, my aunt uh, lived just literally around the corner from us, and she brought the local uh, newspaper. And uh, we didn't live far from the city of Leeds. And uh, she showed me this little advertisement in it, and it was for a UFO group meeting, the Yorkshire UFO Society, that coming Sunday. So off I went. No idea where this place was, you know, on the bus. And, uh, hey, presto, it was the Yorkshire UFO Society that was uh, started by uh, brothers Graham and Mark Birdsell, who, of course, went on many years later to uh, print and uh, edit the usually successful UFO magazine. So that's how it all started, Ben. You know, that's nearly 40 years ago now. Wow. I, I actually lived in Germany for a while as well. Um, so this was after you came back from Ger you, you were out in Germany, you got these books, you got interested, and then you came back 
and you picked it up from there joining this club. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I didn't really think much of it, but when I, when I got there, Ben, and met Graham and Mark and others, there were about 25 people there, you know, not, not a huge audience. Somehow I just felt at home and uh, became more and more fascinated. Obviously, Graham and Mark had already been involved for a couple of years. You know, Graham was older than me. Mark was the same age as me. And, uh, you know, I always wanted to, to learn more, Ben. I'm, I'm the type of person who prefers to learn things for himself. Or, for example, if there were a button that says don't press, I'd want to press it to see what happens. You know what I mean? Uh, and we were fortunate, Ben, because in, in the early 1980s, we had a lot of UFO reports coming from areas in and around Yorkshire, mainly North Yorkshire, in and around the, the market town of Skipton and most of which came our way. So, you know, just, just, it's looking, you know, right time, right place. Wow, okay. And um, were there any particular incidents, particularly that sort of stand out in your mind from back then that really kind of got you hooked? Or it sounds like you already from the literature and from, uh, as you say, you're, you're one of these people that, you know, if there's a, breast, a button that says don't touch, you, you, you want to touch it. And I, I think there is there are a lot of people that they kind of just go with a herd and they go, well, that looks really fascinating. But everyone says it's nonsense or it's woo woo. And therefore, I'm not going to believe in it. Um, whereas you obviously wanted to test and, and find out for yourself. Was there anything back in those early days that particularly kind of confirmed that? Wow, I'm onto something here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were, again, very fortunate. Um, I mean, my dad. I worked down the coal mines all his life. I was born in a coal mining community. This whole area around here uh, was all coal mines at that time. And I was, I was phoned by a lady, and she, I remember it, even now, she's, her first words were, you won't believe me, you won't believe me. I said, give me a chance. Anyway, Mark and, and, and myself went out to see this lady at a place called Normanton, which was just you know a few minutes' drive from where I lived, five, ten minutes and she told us just a couple of months beforehand, uh, her and her, ch her children had been playing outside. It was a nice summer's day. She'd gone inside to, to wash the dishes after lunch. And one of the children came running in and said, Mom, Mom, there's an aeroplane crashed in the field. Now, they lived in a cul-de-sac. At the end of their cul-de-sac were some fields and some electricity pylons that went out to nearby Ferrybridge Power Station. And she lived in an elevated house, so you literally walked up the front, you know, the steps to her front door. She said, I came out of the door, looked across where these fields were, and there was this thing sat there. She said it looked like a Mexican hat, but was silver in colour, just sat on the ground. So she got the children, they made their way across towards this thing. At one point, Ben, they, they lose sight of it because they go down a little, uh, a little dip and there's a little stream there. And when they come up the other side, this field is bordered by a small fence. And now this thing was still there, but there was now three tall humanoids, all dressed in white, white big visor on their face. They were so close they could see that they didn't wear gloves. They had mittens huh. and big boots, and they, but appeared to be waving something over the ground. Now, the children were trying to get over the fence. They, they weren't scared by this, but she was, so she held them back. At which point these, these three men went to the back of this thing. It rose up into the air, completely silent, and, and shot off in the distance. 
And uh, we even interviewed one of the children's friends. He'd actually been playing with them, but he'd gone home for lunch. So he came back after lunch and had missed it all. And he was a bit miffed oh. about it, you know? And, um, you know, she was the type of lady. And these, these children were actually playing the same ball game. It was a made-up ball game that I used to play when I was their age. You know, exactly the same. Um, her husband worked down the mine. She was just like my neighbours. It's not—it's nothing scientific. I mean, but she didn't want any publicity. Wouldn't let her take a photograph because she had a curlers in, you know. <laughs> so again, Ben, you know, I haven't been involved that long, mm. and, and this happens now. So you have to—I think you have two options with this lady, Mrs. Westerman. She was called. She, she's either lying. Or she's telling the truth. There is no in between. You know, you can't misidentify something at such close quarters. This wasn't a little light in the sky. This is on a bright, sunny day. And she was amazed, Ben. She thought it'll be all over the newspapers tomorrow. It'll be on the TV news, you know. But nothing. None of her neighbours had seen anything. There's, there's two motorways boards. Goes behind Normanton. You know, it's not an out-of-the-way place, you know. And, what, and, what's, uh, and nothing. What what time of day was it? And then do you remember which year it was by any chance? It was 1981, and she couldn't remember the exact date, but it was it it was it was it was June or July because it was before the children had actually broken up for school holidays, mm. and she knows it was a weekend because they were playing out at lunchtime. If it had been during the day, the children would have been at school. Mm-hmm. So she couldn't give me the exact date, but or, you know, or the time time of day. Do you remember? Uh, it was about twelve thirty ish. You know, yeah. they always had lunch. She says usually between sort of twelve and one ish, uh, depending what they were doing. But it was always that time of day, and um, you know, she said it was a lovely summer's day. That's why the children were playing outside, playing with it, playing the ball game, and they said, you know, they're playing the ball game, and the ball went up in the air, and they saw this thing. Descend at an angle, stop in midair, then just drop to the ground. So they just wanted to, to get mum. Goodness me. And did you get to speak to the children as well then? did you? Oh, get yeah, to- absolutely. All of them. God. All of them. And, and their friend. We interviewed their friend as well. And like I said, he was miffed because he missed it. Yeah. But what he did say, he says, you know, I came back after lunch and they were all gibbering and talking about this and excited. And uh, what was... Curious about it, they never really called it a UFO or a flying saucer or spacemen. They just said this thing, yeah. you know, this thing and these men. They didn't call them spacemen, they, they were men. These, these top these men. Yeah. And um, make of it what you will. Well, yeah, I think the two things would strike me about that. One is adults can can be can be deceptive, can lie. They can. You know, they can put forward a, a, a convincing argument to some extent. Um, but when you speak to children, you can tell. Well, you can't always. I mean, I've got two kids, 11 and 8, but you can't always tell. But they, they, they just can't lie about something like that, can they? Um, well, there was no point. You know, what was it? She only, the only reason she rang me is because I'd done a, a feature in a local newspaper. Mm. And it ran my telephone number, so she decided to, to, to call me. There was no point in lying. She didn't want any publicity. Um, you know, for years I never used her real name. She's probably, you know, long gone by now, so I, I feel comfortable in using it. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, even then we knew that most UFO sightings to us had a conventional explanation at the end of the day. But 
there's no conventional explanation for this. It's either the truth or the telling lies. And I couldn't find any reason why they'd want to invent such a story, you know. But uh, it, it confirmed to me then that I wasn't wasting my time, you know, that I had made the right decision. Mm. And, uh, and off I went. Amazing. <laughs> Um, and also the fact that they didn't, and I think that's kind of draws some parallels perhaps with the Pascagoula case, whereby the, the people, as it sounds from what you described there, they didn't even, or the children anyway, didn't understand the, the terminology or the folklore. So they were just explaining what they'd seen. They'd seen spacemen, they'd seen a craft or whatever, you, 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 as you said, they didn't say it was a UFO, they said it was a Mexican hat. Yeah, she never called it a UFO or a flying saucer or a spaceship or anything. She said at one point it reminded her of like a, a tank, but without the gun turret on the front, but it had smooth edges. But her first, her first description of it was like a large Mexican hat, mm. uh, and, that, and, she, and she stuck with that. And, of course, when she phoned me, she, she said, I wouldn't believe her. <laughs> yeah. you know? Well, I think there, that's one amazing example, and obviously in your career I'm sure you've seen loads of other um, examples where nobody's really heard about it too much, for example, just as you, for, for the story that you've just told, but there, it's fascinating, compelling, and really rings true. Um, obviously, we don't have any physical evidence of that, but it really sounds true. So what, what I think is really kind of interesting in, the, in the, this subject now is every, every year that goes past, it seems like the science community or the quote-unquote real science community um, comes up with more evidence and more acceptance of the idea that there is bound to be intelligent life out, out there in the universe and, and perhaps it's even bound to be uh, visiting us. So, and, and it's interesting the amount of money that they spend on a sort of macro scale on the, on the other side of the spectrum from you. You're obviously on the micro scale. You're kind of dealing with these really exciting, really um, amazing uh, examples and dealing with people on a one-to-one -one basis. And then on the other side, you have the Arecibo or the um, large array sa um, satellites that they're pumping, uh, uh, sorry, um, antennas that they're putting loads of money into to, to see if they can detect signals you know, light years away. Um, and they obviously have the, the Mars missions, which are detecting methane, and they're getting closer and closer to, to, micro, to confirming microbial potential for microbial life having once existed on Mars. Um, there seems like there's just this big gulf between the two of you. So um, is, do you feel like um, that can be sort of is getting, there's starting to be some sort of kind of reconciliation between that I think that gulf is, is getting is, is getting smaller and smaller as, as technology advances, Ben. Mm. Um, I mean, again, many years ago, I, I, I uh, read a book called The Intelligent Universe by Sir Fred Hoyle, a British astronomer. And even then, I mean, this is going back into the 1980s, even then he was saying that there is evidence for microbial life, not just on Mars, but throughout the universe. And it was there... In, in meteorites, you know, that they were micro fossils. And then, of course, if you, if you, if you remember, um, uh, Bill Clinton uh, yes. announced the, the, the fossil from Mars, although they wouldn't go the whole way and say, yes, it is microbial, it is a micro, a micro fossil, but pretty much confirmed it. Yes, so, yeah. you know, I just think, whichever way you look at it, Ben, whether you're a, a believer in evolution or whether you're of a religious nature, you know, Either way, the universe is not there just to look pretty. I think life is part and parcel 
of the universe. It's, it's like, you know, oxygen and nitrogen and all the other elements that are in abundance throughout the universe. I think life is as well. The only thing that um, that we, we need to, to look at carefully is the time span in which, you know, civilizations have advanced because we know the roughly the age of the universe is around like 14 billion years or something like that. So whether, you know, intelligent species exist at the same time as us is another argument. Uh, but however, you know, it, it was again kind of curious that I did a lecture last year um, based on one of my colleagues saying, you know, UFO study is a complete waste of time, Philip. You've just been wasting your time. So it made me think. So I stood up on stage and I went back over the, some of the cases I'd investigated, like the one I've just mentioned and others, and I came to the conclusion that I hadn't been wasting my time. And even if I had, it's my time to waste anyway. But then lo and behold, you know, come uh, uh, the end of the year in the New York Times was the expose of the Departments of Defense secret UFO study that they'd had for a number of years. And here's some of the film footage we've captured, which basically you know, in a roundabout way, confirm that UFOs do exist, mm. you know, so uh, I had, you know, so no, you know, I mean, for the past I, I don't 40 years, I haven't been wasting my time. No, I don't think you have at all. And um, in fact, as you say, the, the Department of Defense released these videos and then you have the, the former White House chief of staff, um, John Podesta, who was discovered through the WikiLeaks uh, to have been looking into disclosing a lot of information. Well, we don't know exactly, but he was certainly engaged with some UFO researcher. Yeah. So, and these are all facts. So I think with this subject, you really, there are some amazing stories, but you kind of, it's, you have to go back to that, um, the, the, the idea of extraordinary um, ideas require extraordinary evidence. And I think that's a fair assessment because it is exciting when we hear some of these stories, but then you do need to say, okay, well, here's this um, Martian rock that we found in the Arctic and 10 out of 10, you know, Harvard astronomers say that it's genuine. Whereas we're almost 99%, gen, you know, it's, it's almost 99% fact that that was a, a microbe from Mars. But because it's such an important, perhaps one of the most important scientific breakthroughs for humanity, they want, it, it, it's you know, it's got to pass muster. So I think the work that you're doing it's, it's, you know, it's, it's getting more and more important every year in the eyes of the, well, it's always been important, but I think as this science develops, people are going to require your knowledge more and more, I think, you know, as time goes on. Imagine if there was some proof tomorrow, they'd suddenly go, Philip, what's going on with these things? Who are these guys? You know, you'd be the most in-demand person around. Um, but the other point I was going to say, obviously, because of the nature of it, it gets mired in a lot of... Um, you know, attention seeking and you and perhaps even more pernicious is the 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 government influence whereby intelligence agencies, I think it's been shown, have tried to uh, create disinformation. So say they've got the Aurora or whatever new craft out. They try to put forward ideas that UFO, you know, it could be a UFO. How do you feel about that? Do you? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the CIA admitted for, that, that for many years they had, they had put out false UFO stories to cover up uh, flights of the U-2 spy plane, you know. But um, we have to remember that, you know, this, this, this is the nature of, of their 
their work, you know, rightly or wrongly. Um, that's what they do. And, you know, if you think about it, man, it's the perfect cover story. Call it a UFO, and people go running around in all, all directions. But um, it's, it's a bit like the magician on stage. No, you, you know it's not magic. You know it's a trick. But, of course, he uses uh, the art of misdirection. You know, he'd be waving one hand in front of your face, but you really should be looking at his other hand, and that's the one that does the trick. So same with the CIA. It's a form of misdirection. And, um, you know, so, so you know, that does happen, but it, it, it can in no way account for the vast majority of UFO sightings. It is one aspect of it. Yes. Um, uh, and, of course, you know, the spy plane's long gone. They've now got stealth, this satellites and all this, so there's no need for that anymore. Mm. Um, and just to, to, to muddy the waters, I don't really see the point, just to muddy the waters for the sake of it. They would only do it if it, if it suited their purpose. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, in the run-up, you remember when the stealth fighter was first officially revealed? Yes, but there were lots of sightings yeah. of a triangular craft leading up to that. So whether that was part and parcel of it as well, I don't know. Yeah. But we, we do know that the, the, the forces that be have used UFOs as a cover story. So you just have to be aware of that. That's yeah. all. Well, I think I, yes, I think I heard you saying, and I thought it was very uh, a very apt and, uh, and uh, important point, was that the, uh, you know, some people say 95% of these sightings are... Um, you know, can be explained away. But I think you said, uh, perhaps it was when you're speaking to Alejandro, um, that it actually should be about 99% or, or more. But it's those 1% that are particularly, you know, exciting and really look like real cases. Well, I would say even, even less than 1%. It's a very, very small percentage, Ben. Um, you just have to be honest, you know. And I, I mean, I've got a filing cabinet next to me, literally an old-fashioned filing cabinet with papers in it, most of which is, is, is research, but there's a whole host of sightings, most of which, you know, can be explained away fairly easily. Uh, but like the story I told you of Mr. We Mrs. Westerman and her children, things like that are few and far between. Yeah. It's that kind of story that tends to make the headlines, mm. but... You know, all UFO organizations, all the other stuff is, you know, put to one side. Um, so there only is a very, very small percentage. Uh, I wouldn't like to say exactly what it is because nobody knows. But in my experience, it's, it's, it's a fraction of a percent. But nonetheless, you know, it's that little nugget of gold that you find amongst all the sound Absolutely. that makes all the difference, you know. Well, uh, and we, sh we should always remember that. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that goes back to your point of earlier about, you know, is it worth, you know, all the, this hard work that you've done over the years. And it's incredibly important to have people like yourself who do have a very rational uh, and, you know, logical way of approaching these things, um, you know, to try to sort the wheat from the chaff. Um, and, and obviously you've done that time and time again over the years. Um, now, in terms of the cover-up aspect. I mean, do you think there's a massive organized cover-up going on in the government, or do you think it's a case of they just, you know, it's a bit like they don't know what's happening, and therefore they released these videos recently, the DOD released these really interesting videos at the, the, by the aircraft carrier, and do you think it's just a case of saying, look, we don't, we don't know what it is, here's what we've seen, we're not covering anything up. Well, 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to remember to start off with that it is the nature of governments to keep secrets. You know, all governments keep secrets for a reason. We have what's called the Official Secrets Act here in the UK, largely brought in during the First World War for obvious reasons. So it's, it's, it's vastly outdated. I'll give you an example of how outdated it is. Uh, a friend of mine used to work in a textile mill making cloth. Mm-hmm. But yet he had to sign the Official Secrets Act. And I said, well, why? He said, well, some of the cloth we, we make is used to make military dress uniforms. That's all. There's nothing secret about it. It's just used to make uniforms. It's not of any special fibre. It's not bulletproof, you know. So so it's the nature of going to keep secrets. Do I think, you know, they're keeping secrets an alien in the fridge? No, I don't. Uh, I think, like you said at the end there, that... The governments are as puzzled as we are. They may have better information. They may have uh, better films. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may have radar and, and things of this nature. But, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, we have to remember this, Ben. We don't investigate UFOs. We investigate reports of UFOs. Now, whether you're civilian or, or, or military, that remains the same because by the time you get there, it's gone. <laughs> so all you have, by and large, is witness testimony. Sometimes you will have some physical evidence, a photograph, film, etc. Uh, and that applies to. But you see, no government, no government would would want to admit that it doesn't have control of its own airspace. Um, even our own government, a few years back, released a study that they'd done on UFOs, and they turned them unidentified atmospheric phenomena, but confirmed nonetheless that they exist, but they said there were no threat to the defence of the UK, they had no idea what they were, but they were interested in them uh, nonetheless. They claimed they may have been responsible for the events at Rendlesham Forest in uh, December 1980. Uh, it's called the Condine Report. Uh, nobody knows who's the author of it. That that is that is one part of it's kept secret. But you can you can access the whole report, and and then of course you have the the information from the Department of Defence, uh, of which I'm led to believe there's more to come. Um, so we shall see. That that's surely to prove interesting as as either this year or next year progresses. But yes, it's the nature of governments to keep secrets. But I think they're as baffled as we are, Ben. I really do. Um. Coming on to the, to the book, so it's a great book. I just, as soon as I spoke to you, I went out and ordered it on Amazon. Pascagoula, the, the Closest Encounter, My Story, Calvin Parker, uh, with, with a foreword by yourself, Philip Mantle. Um, and I'm almost through the whole book, even though it's been, <laughs> I just got it about two day, a day and a half ago. Um, really fascinating stuff, really exciting um, uh, story, obviously, which we'll come to, um, but also um, a lot of added info including all the press articles of the time which is fantastic how many um back in 1973 a how seriously they took it and in many cases weren't ridiculing uh the gentleman involved very much it was you know or, or at all they they generally were saying this is a real ufo this is a real unexplained incident so great job on that um can I ask where? How did you first come across this story, and how did you get in touch with Calvin Parker? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I read about the Pascagoula event many years back, and it, uh, in, a, in a book, and it always fascinated me. You know, it always stuck there with me. And I, I started my own little publishing outfit. 
back in 2015. And last year, um, I obtained the rights to republish um, UFO Contact at Pascagoula, which was by Charles Hickson. And uh, I thought at the time, wouldn't it be nice, because Charles was already uh, passed away, um, I thought, maybe I can track Calvin Parker down and get an interview for him, put it in the back of the book, because he's largely not been involved uh, with uh, the book by Charles Hickson and William Mendes. Uh, he kept away from it. He was interviewed, but he kept largely. And when I'm reading that one, I'm thinking, I wonder what Calvin would make of that. I wonder what Calvin would make of this. What, did that happen to Calvin? So anyway, took me a while, but I managed to track him down and get him on the telephone. And lo and behold, when I'm speaking to him, he said, you know, Philip, I'd like to write my own book. And he said, I've been to a funeral a few months back, and he met a lot of old friends he hadn't seen for a while, and they were all asking how he was going on, and this, they all knew about the incident, so they asked him about it, and a few of them said, why don't you write your own book? And of course, uh, Wynette, his wife, I think she was the driving force, so I said, well, maybe I can help you with that. One of the problems that Calvin had, he'd lost all his, his documentary uh, material. I think most of it went in uh, Hurricane Katrina. They were under eight feet of water, so it gone. So we had to start from scratch as far as that was concerned. Um, but nonetheless, he could, he could tell the story. So we worked on a format for an outline of the book. He, he, wrote, he wrote it, I edited it, and between us, we then set about looking for the documentary information that he lost, like newspaper cuttings, documents. And we got more than we ever expected. Uh, and, and we put as much as we, we thought was necessary in the book. So the book tells his story. And when you see all the newspaper cuttings, yes, they did take it seriously, but it also shows what pressure they were under from the media as well, Ben. Absolutely, but, yes. You know, the, I mean, they were bombarded. Uh, Calvin uh, so tells the story in, in, in the book where at one stage some journalists had tracked him down uh, and he thought, oh, that's a good idea. I'll tell them that I thought I'd met the devil, you know, or, or it was all demonic and that'll get rid of them. But of course, <laughs> that story then went out. Oh, Calvin Parker believes these were demons. He didn't. He made it up. He now realizes it was a mistake, but he just wanted to get rid of them, you know. Yeah. But uh, so it came about purely by by coincidence. I didn't do the interview and put it that one, you know, verbatim as it was, and work with Calvin on, on the new one. And hey, Presto, you have a copy of it there. Well, yeah, it's 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 really a, a compelling book, and uh, so I recommend anyone to get out there onto Amazon and order it. It's uh, Pasigula, the closest encounter, my story, Calvin Parker, um, Philip. If, for the listeners, could you just quickly run through what actually happened, if you wouldn't mind? Yeah, I mean, at the time, uh, Calvin Parker was 19 years of age, uh, and Charles Hickson was 42. Charles Hickson was his friend of his father's, so they'd grown up together. And Calvin actually lived 200 miles away, but he'd been looking for a new job. Uh, Charlie Hickson was a foreman on the shipyard, so he got him a job, you know, and it's in you can, you know, you can bunk at my place for a few dollars a, a week. Board, go home on a week. I've been there just over a week, and these two gentlemen, they love to fish. Ben, you know, they were great fishermen. So they're driving home from from work one night, 
And, and Charlie's pointing out the various spots on the river where he's been fishing. So we'll decide, you know, October the 11th, 1973, decide that night after work to go fishing. So I went home, got ready. Uh, and as they're driving into this place, there was a car already parked up. There was somebody in it. And then they drove past like a no-entry sign, which Calvin wasn't happy about. He thought, well, get into trouble. Charlie says, no, nah, don't worry. So they parked up. Uh, on the Pascagoula River, there's a bridge goes over the river where they are. This is not an out-of-the-way place. It's not in the middle of nowhere. So, you know, so they've been fishing a while. Uh, didn't catch a great deal, so they moved to another spot. And Calvin saw some blue lights, and he thought, it's the police. You know, he remembered the no-entry sign, thinking, oh, they're going to ask, going to tell us to, to, you know, to pack it in. Of course, when they turned around, they could see this object descending, like a, an American football, with two lights at one end, and these were giving off light, and it, it it dropped down very close to them. Didn't quite touch the ground. Oh, just so Calvin's first reaction was to run, you know, and he said, if you look at the area for it, <clears throat> the grass is six feet high. But on an old pier, there is nowhere to run. You know, you can't get away. So they're both staring at this thing and opening a pier. They don't know how this happened. This this really puzzled them. These three beings floated out. And when I say floated, I mean that. They floated. They didn't touch the floor. Humanoid, but very peculiar looking beings. No eyes, no nose, no mouth. They had pointed protrusions out of the side of the head and one out the front of the face. Again, they had like either pincers or mittens for hands. Their, their legs were always together. They had stumpy feet. They were grey in colour. And they, they said the, the surface of their skin was like that of an elephant, you know, wrinkly grey. They both were grabbed, taken on board this thing. Calvin tells about his examination. Now, originally... Calvin and, and Charles changed stories here, but ah, they were then deposited back on the bank uh, and this thing went. So they decided to get the hell out of there. It was Calvin's car. It was brand new. And when they got to the car, the window had been smashed on the on the passenger side. There's no idea how that had happened. Hmm. car didn't start to begin with, but then off they went. Um, at first, they were going to go home. They're not going to tell anybody, but they decided to pull into a, a payphone and they telephoned Keesler Air Force Base. And they just said, we're not interested. Ring the sheriff. Took off again. Another payphone. And this time they phoned the sheriff and he said, just hang fire. I'll come and get you. So one of the deputies went out there, took them into town to the sheriff's department. They were interviewed separately there. Basically, the sheriffs and their deputies didn't really believe them. So what they did, they put them both um, together in one room, went up to the desk and, and opened a drawer and put it back and then left them to it. Unbeknown to them, in that drawer was a tape recorder playing. Hmm. And they had no idea about this. And they thought, well, deputy thought, we'll catch them now. So a few minutes later, they came back in, took something out of the drawer, they went and played the tape. And, of course, they didn't catch them out. They were still talking about what happened to them. Calvin was very distressed. He was almost pain at one point. And um, it Sorry, was then that the sheriff's department believed them, you know? 
Sorry, Philip, you just, sorry, you, I think it just went silent for a second there. You said they were, I just thought it was an important point. They were actually praying in, because I think they're both. Calvin was saying his prayers, yes. You know, he, he was a young man, absolutely petrified by what had happened. And the only, one of the reasons they, they agreed to go and, and tell the sheriff their story um, <clears throat> was if no one let the story out into the public domain. So eventually the, the sheriff let them go, they went home. And um, we thought, we'll, well, we'll go back to work tomorrow morning. And, of course, the, the word had got out. They never found out who released the story from the sheriff's department, but someone did. And, you know, it was a, a circus. They couldn't get to work. The telephone wouldn't stop ringing. The media were calling. People were turning up. And then within 36 hours, um, Alan Hynek was on site. You know, Dr. Hynek uh, and with a chap called Dr. James Harder. And before they left, Hynek gave them uh, a glowing reference, saying they were the genuine article. The following day, they also went to Keesler, somewhat ironically, uh, and were checked for radiation, uh, which was negative. But they were then interviewed by base personnel. And in the book, you'll see the full transcript of that in interview, uh, which is published, I believe, for the first time. And, um, you know, they tried to live their lives. Calvin... Three weeks later, was in bed one night, and he said, I just couldn't stop shaking. So his brother took him to a hospital uh, where he was committed. He had a nervous breakdown. So it was decided Charles Hickson would do the press. He was quite happy speaking to the press. He believed people should know about this. It was important. But Calvin pretty much faded into the background, which is what he wanted to do. It would, it would occasionally pop up now and again, but... You know, he keep out of the way. But I mean, he suddenly become engaged, and he was also worried that his 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 fiance's father would say, "You're not marrying this lunatic." You know, uh, that that also worried him. You know, how, how do you tell your your future father-in-law that just being abducted by aliens and I want to marry your daughter? You know, <laughs> yeah, especially back uh, so then. So that worried him quite. So off he went and. Uh, you know, there's a lot more to it. I've, I've kind of that's just yeah. the bare bones to it there, really. But a fascinating account, nonetheless. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, the the reason being, it's just interesting to give uh, anyone who hasn't hasn't heard of it an idea of of the story, um, because it really there is a, a a lot more to it. Obviously, a lot more detail in the book. Um, so. Now, do you know if anything was stolen from the men when the that's? I didn't hear that bit. I wasn't aware of that bit about the car having been broken into. Were you? Yeah, aware? I mean, it, it, they couldn't understand it. it the, when they got to the car, the, the window was actually all shattered. Mm. And when they opened the door, of course, the glass just fell out. This was a brand new car, mm. and um, they no idea how that had happened. Um, they'd seen the other car that was parked nearby drive off before this all happened, so they had right. gone. They think it might have been a courting couple, you know, and, sure. but they, they'd gone. So there was no one else there. Mm. And, and again, the car wouldn't start to begin with, which, uh, you know. That is interesting, yeah. Yeah, because it was a brand new car. Yes. I mean, it was Calvin's pride and joy. Was it, it was a brand new car. And that kind of, you know, puzzled him as well. Mm. And um, it's, you know. Charlie was really a hero because his only concern throughout all of this was to protect his young his young friend. You know, he didn't mind 
speaking to the press and keeping Calvin out of the way because he knew how badly Calvin had been affected. But having said that, when when even when Charlie was on board the thing, Charlie had been in combat in Korea. Mm. He'd been in the U.S. Army and, and been involved in some quite large battles. And um, although that didn't really come across perhaps in this book, but he was terrified. And uh, they both said, if you're going to kill me, kill me now. You know, they were that frightened. They, they said, kill me now. Don't talk to me. Kill me. Mm. You know, but Charlie fell back on his military experiences and he remembered one incident where they were pinned down by the enemy and his, his captain said to him, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Keep your head down and we'll have a chance to get out of here. Just be patient. So he, he kind of used that while he was on board this thing. And, and, and uh, you know, then later on in the book, um, there is the hypnosis session with uh, Bud Hopkins and Calvin Parker. Which again is quite revealing because um, more detail emerges, and uh, you know, again, Calvin he wanted to die, and there's you know, uh, it, it, it's all a fascinating series of events, it really is. And somebody said, Well, why is it so? Well, I said, It's unique because, first of all, two of them involved, rarely do you get two more than one person involved. They went straight to the authorities, they found the Air Force base first off. And then within the hour, they were actually being interviewed, you know, by the, the, you know, the sheriff's department. Not five years, ten years later, you know, still shaking from it, you know. Uh, and then they were interviewed by the Air Force Base. Then Heinick was on site in, within 36 hours. So it's, it's a unique encounter for many reasons. Plus the things that they actually encountered, Ben, these creatures, I think they're pretty unique. I'm, I'm not aware of any others that look exactly the same. And um, so it's a fascinating story. It really is. Uh, and, you know, one that when we speak to Calvin today, he, he, he's, he says pretty much the same thing. He, you know, his story remains the same today. He's not really changed a great deal. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with everything that you said. I mean, for those who are listening who aren't, who, who, who don't know who J. Allen Hynek is, he, he headed up the... Uh, as far as I'm aware, he headed up the U.S. government uh, sort of, I, I don't want to use the word X-Files, but effectively the investigations into UFO project, project, project Grudge, Project Blue Book, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, Philip. But Yeah, and of course he was the guy who invented the, the, the and was a consultant on the film with Steven Spielberg, and he you know, has a small cameo in it as well. So he is the Close Encounters man, right. and uh, there, there's there's a new TV series coming out called Blue Book, mm. which features J. Allen Hynek. Now, the other point that I think is really fascinating, which I haven't seen as much focus on as yet about this, is um, the it's a, it's kind of a, a big coincidence that there's a big nuclear shipbuilding, so nuclear submarine building base which is literally right there. And there's only one s nuclear sub base, or I probably shouldn't use the word base, nuclear submarine uh, shipbuilding facility in the Gulf Coast. There are only seven in the US and only one along the Gulf Coast. And it happens to be within about 100, as far as I can tell anyway, about 100 meters of where this happened. Um, and in the past, I don't know if you're well, possibly familiar with some of the sightings that happened at the uh, missile silos in the Midwest of the U.S., which are also incredibly um, well-documented and uh, very credible. So I think it's really interesting that this very credible case also happened 
within 100 meters of where they build nuclear submarines. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole area was shipbuilding, and as you, as you rightly pointed out, the nuclear base as well for their submarines. I mean, it's what Charlie did for a living. You know, yeah. Calvin started it, and the, the whole area was shipbuilding. Probably yeah. not not so much uh, so now, but it, it still still has that uh, attached to it. But there were other witnesses as well. Um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but there was an, a, a naval officer that, that night, also uh, UFO. Yes. I think about three or four days before Calvin uh, and Charlie's sighting, in, in the actual uh, outlet of the river, the river's mouth, uh, again, two other men out fishing, mm. but this time they saw something under the water, and they went in person to report it to the Coast Guard. The mm. Coast Guard sent a boat out there who also saw it and followed it for 20 minutes but couldn't figure out what it, what it was. And, of course, we have all the documents from the Coast Guards uh, in the book. You know, and, and, again, I think that's for the first time that the, the, the been published in book formats. So all the documents are there. So, and we have to remember as well, in 1973, across the United States, was a huge wave of, of sightings and encounters. You know, a, a, there was a, a large flap, and this was in the middle of it, so to speak. Mm. Now, were there radar signatures picked up, do you know? We've no, 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 um, no physical evidence to support what Calvin and, and, and Charlie were saying. Um, like I said, there's the, the highway, I think it's called uh, eight, uh, Highway 90 there, mm-hmm. and there's a large bridge that goes over the Pascagoula River, <clears throat> and, and they could see the bridge from where they were, mm-hmm. uh, and, on, and, it, and on that bridge is a, is a toll booth, mm-hmm. and there was a, it's permanently manned, mm-hmm. so it's manned 24 hours a day. Uh, and had some cameras on it, but the cameras weren't looking. We're not pointing in that direction. They went and spoke to the man who was on duty that night. He had, he hadn't seen anything either, um, so there was no direct uh, support f- for uh, their encounter. No third party witnesses. No film, photographs, radar that we're aware of anyway. Um, but uh, who knows? But we we don't have any. Okay. Um... Nonetheless, still, there was quite a few witnesses. I thought I read that there were 12 witnesses to certain, not not of the, obviously, to seeing them being taken away, but in the area. Uh, yeah, there were, there yeah. were other witnesses. Yeah. I mentioned the naval one because yeah. the naval guy, there was he wasn't alone. He had colleagues in the car with him. Um, I recently tried to track him down in Florida, but he, he moved yeah. house. He's still alive, but I just can't find yeah. him. Mike Cat- so, Cataldo, yeah. That's the one. Yeah. Um, so there were others that saw things in and around the area on the same night or the night before, you know. Um, so it wasn't an isolated incident in that respect, but nothing yeah. like what, what these two gentlemen encountered. Now, I know we're coming up for time, so um, I guess the last point I'd make is just how one mustn't forget how harrowing it was for particularly the younger lad uh calvin who was only 19 at the time and the, the pictures in the book just capture the sort of haunted look on his face when he's sitting on the on the couch next to um next to charles hickson and you just really get a sense just looking absolutely at I mean, yeah i mean it was petrified i mean i, I told you i transcribed Bud hopkins um regression session with him and and i've put in brackets you know calvin screams but mm. in, in words it doesn't come across and i'm sat there transcribing this for him mm. And I've got the headphones on, and you can just hear him screaming. Oh my word! You know? So you've got the actual. I mean, I mean screaming. I don't mean going. I don't mean whimpering. I mean screaming. Oh my goodness! 
you know. And it's it's rather disconcerting to hear a grown man scream. Obviously, Bud calmed him down and did a fantastic job, but he's screaming. Yes, yeah, gosh, you know, mm, horrible. I don't, you know, I don't think that, that aspect comes across too much. It's one of the reasons why Calvin wanted not just to detail what happened to him, but how it affected him at the time and how it's still affected him down the years. But now he's at a stage where he's able to deal with it, you know, yes. hence him wanting to, to get the book out there and, and set the record straight for the first time. Uh, and I think he's, he's, he's managed to do that very well. Well, yeah, I mean, because if, if you think about it, if someone, if you change the terminology and you say, right, this 19-year-old was um, kidnapped, at assaulted, um, and, uh, you know, attacked, uh, you would, he would go through counseling, he would be in the hospital right away, he, there would be all sorts of institutionalized setup for him. But because of this, the nature of what happened, um, instead he gets disbelief, he's got to convince people, and he's not being treated properly, and hence why he had this sort of I, I would imagine, you know, helped lead to this breakdown. So, um, yeah, certainly sympathy to to him for that. That must have been very tough at that at that pivotal point in his life. Um, right, um, Philip, thank you so much. I know we're coming up to uh, time. We could obviously talk about this all day, but I really <laughs> do appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for 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 coming on the podcast. Um, and uh, enjoy the rest of the. Hopefully, it's sunny up there in Pontefract. And you can get out of the house now and, and enjoy your weekend. It is, mate. Ben, and it's a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Guys, fascinating stuff there. And if you enjoyed that, please make sure to look out for the next episode where we speak directly with Calvin Parker, who was actually taken aboard a UFO in Pascagoula, Mississippi, while fishing one evening. Really, really fascinating story. You can have some goose pimples after listening to that. That's coming up soon. That's coming up next. Look that. Look out for it. Have a great day.